Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abajamra, and I'm your host. I am so glad you're here. If you're a regular listener, then you know that this is a place where we talk about difficult conversations and we talk about hope in difficult situations. Uh, You know, if you've listened uh, already, that we're in a series called Uncomfortable Conversations About Racism in the Church. Man, I love this conversation and where we're going to be going with this. And uh, uh, as a reminder, this podcast series is really aimed at the church. It's aimed at those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. We have been invited to step up and lead the world in reconciliation and in love. We're not to shy away from uncomfortable conversations, but to get to a biblical understanding of how to love better. Our guests, I believe, are going to help us do it. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest. She's a friend of a friend, and I've already gotten to know her a little, and uh, more importantly, I've gotten to watch her on YouTube. She uh, is uh, uh, a spoken word uh, artist. Her name is Taja Sparkman, and she is one of those people that I always want to grow up to be like. Uh, Spoken word is, I don't know if you knew that, Taja, but something that I would have loved to do in another life. But alas, God has not gifted me in all things. Uh, Taja is... um, uh, a woman who lives in Chicago in the Des Plaines area. She's my neighbor. She's married. She's got three kids, three girls, which I think is unique. Uh, she is a creative who has used her writing and speaking gifts both in and out of the church. In addition to performing and recording several original spoken word pieces, uh, which, as I mentioned, you can find on YouTube, she has also served on the production team of the local church. I found very interesting, Taja, that you're from the south side of Chicago. So first yeah. of all, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, the Inglewood neighborhood specifically. That's I read it and I was like, that's cool. So, so explain to the listeners exactly what type of uh, neighborhood you grew up in. So um, the neighborhood that I grew up in, it was all black. There was violence. And so as a result, a lot of my childhood was spent indoors. I'm a reader by nature because of that. My mom had us very sheltered to protect us. So there are things that there are memories that I don't have. Like I'm 33 and I just climbed a tree for the first time because I I didn't do that growing up, but it was my normal. And while I knew that I lived in a bad neighborhood, it wasn't exceptionally bad or anything of that sort to me. It just was what it was. Um, Mm -hmm. It was my neighborhood. It was the only thing that I knew. It wasn't until I got older and I started interacting with people from other neighborhoods that like I really realized the reputation that Inglewood had. But so your neighborhood was we would say about what 100% African American? Yeah. I I don't think my stepdad is white and so I think he's probably the only uh white person that I can recall seeing as a child in my neighborhood. <laughs> and you went to a black church in that neighborhood where you did you grow up in the faith? I did. Um I, I want to say I was born and raised in the church, too, because I don't remember a time not being in church. My grandmother uh, was very active. And as a result, I was very active in the church. Even like as far back as first grade, I was reciting poems in the church. Not my own poems, other people's, but yeah. uh, it was just something that I grew up doing. Uh, we had Sunday school for kids. We didn't have a kids ministry like a lot of uh, the churches today. We sat in the service with the adults. But um, we did have our own Sunday school. So you went to a private school growing up? I did. Um, so uh, I lived in a bad neighborhood, um, but also I lived across the street from a school and my mom tried to enroll me. And the story goes, I was probably going into preschool, but I could already count to 100. And they told my mom that 
there was nothing they could do with me. So she needed to find somewhere else because mm-hmm. most of the kids that they were seeing or they were enrolling uh, weren't there yet. So I've never actually gone to school in my neighborhood. Did you feel like even so then you grew up, you went to college um, and eventually found a white church. Talk about that transition and even trying to fit into that church as a woman of color. After I graduated from college, I moved out of state um, to Kansas. And that was one of the first things I did was I found a church and it was another black church. And I had at that point, I hadn't even considered going to uh, a church of another race. I, I just thought that like, it had to be a, a black church for me to relate, for me to understand. And then after um, somewhere around my time in Kansas, my parents are divorced. So I would like go visit my dad in St. Louis and him and my stepmom were starting to attend a church there. And it was a predominantly white non-denominational church. And so I liked it. I would go with them and I liked it. And so then I decided, well, Maybe there's something to this denomination thing, like the church that I loved at home or like growing up, it was non-denominational. Like the church I found when I was in Kansas, it was non-denominational. And I liked that one. And now I'm seeing my dad and my stepmom at this church and it's non-denominational. So it was like a common thread. But when you first went being in your whole life in an African-American church, going to the, you know, an environment of church that was mostly white, was that odd for you or not really? You were just, I mean, you were already in a white you know, like college and stuff. So was it, I mean, was it a big, like, do white people make it a bigger deal or was it a big deal that, you know, was it culture shock? A little bit of both and black and white people make it a big deal. Um, by the time we, my husband and I found a church here that we like. You got married after college? I did get married after college. Um, okay. To, uh, just to, for the right, I mean, just so people, but, but to a black man. Yeah, I got I got married to a black man. Um, we we went to the same college. Uh, we did not know each other in college. We met. Um, I went back to visit, and then that's when we met. And nice. then uh, we got married uh, sometime after that. And so we got married in 2015 uh, in Milwaukee, actually. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, when we when we moved to Des Plaines, I was very adamant that I wanted to find. Um, a church home. So we did, um, like I said, I got away from, or not that I got away from, but like I wasn't actively following Christ in college. Like I had gotten away from college and I was trying my best, but I, I wasn't perfect. And so my husband and I, we did have kids before we got married. And so for me, when our first daughter was born, it was important to me that she was raised in the church. Um, mm-hmm. I was raised in the church and I could see that when I went away from the church, that that's when a lot of my problems started. And that's when like, I started really struggling with life and how to navigate through it. And mm. some of that was kind of like, as a child, you have these rose colored glasses on it. So you see things in black and white and, you know, absolutes. And so there, there were some other things that were happening too, that were not necessarily related to my, me being active in a church. But it was also, I feel like it was compounded by the fact that I didn't have a, a right. church home. That's huge. I, mean, that, that's an, I think that's really an important point. It's the sense of community, I mean, more than anything. And I think we've gotten away from that. I know from reading your bio and hearing you talk even before, like you really believe in the local church. And I can see why, because there's accountability and community and 
uh, a connection, you know, no matter what happens in the week, you sort of come back to a tethered cord to God's people and his, pre- you know, his presence is always, but I totally appreciate that point. I don't think that's a small point. And so your husband went along with that. You, he, he was like, all right, we're going to do it. Yeah. And so my husband, he has a different background than mine. And so like the church was present in his childhood, but it was not as big for him and his family as it was for mine. And so even when we first met, he's never, he was never like, absolutely not. He was always like, I want to be, a, if this is important to you, then I want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the habits that I had picked up in college was that when I would go out with people, I would excuse myself to say grace. I wouldn't Wow. Other people cool. say it because a lot of my friends I found weren't saying grace, but I was raised, you always say thanks for your food. And Amen. I, I wasn't turning from that. And I so, like your grandma. I think she taught you that. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's really good. That's good. And so, <laughs> so we went, uh, we went to a restaurant and I was like, one second, I need to say grace. So then I bowed my head and I said, grace. And when I finished, she said, why didn't you ask me if I wanted to? And I was like, well, I, <laughs> I, I just told you didn't. And he was like, no, um, I would have said it with you. And so that became our thing very early on, even before we were officially dating, was that we said grace together. And so mm-hmm. when um, our daughter was born and I wanted her, I wanted to find a church, I said, this is important to me, but I won't force it on you because I know we have different backgrounds. And he said, no, we'll go as a family. Like, yeah, if you guys are going, I'm right there. And so I'm very thankful for that. That's one of those things that was never talked to me about how important that is in a relationship. But when I found it in him, I recognized how huge that was right. that supported my faith journey. Yeah. Um, so we we were looking, and at this point, we him and I both we have um, we grew up where like we were nerds and we had tastes that were like outside of the black culture, and so we've never felt like we were never opposed to a other um, church or a different culture. And so we, we really, we, ch- we church hopped and we were looking for a church that resonated with us that uh, it, we, we had already accepted that we were in a predominantly white suburb. So we probably weren't going to find a black church, but right. it needed to be a church where we felt at home and comfortable. And we went to some, uh, a, we went to several different denominations, but then we found a non-denominational church and we were like, okay, we're at home. And so it, for me, it went from like church being viewed in the eyes of like black versus white to like non-denominational versus these different denominations, which I still don't have a, a, a great understanding of like what the differences are and the nuances between all of them. But I know that like throughout my my relationship with the church, I felt the most growth and the most comfort and community at a non-denominational church. Right. So the last decade or so, roughly speaking, you've been in a predominantly white church. And I feel like the conversation about racism in the church has changed. You know, before, you know, sort of there's an awareness that there's in white churches, there's, you know, and and by the way, there's for the record, I actually hate this idea that there's black churches and white churches. I really, I I, I think many have said that the most segregated hour is is Sunday morning and in the church. And I I think that's so true. I I think it's, it's, um, it's just, it's, it shocks me still, but to be that as it may, I think, you know, I remember even 10 years ago and 15 years ago being, 
you know, you'd have black people in the white community and you sort of didn't think about the plight that they might be feeling, right? I mean, it was was sort of there, but no one talked about it. And of course, in the last five, six, seven years, there's been more conversation about racism in the church. And now, of course, in, in the last year and all that's happening now, which is sort of why we're doing this conversation is, is I think it's become more pronounced where people have stopped and said, yeah, you know what? We haven't talked about it, but it, 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 there, it exists. There's racism in the church. Like, can you, I mean, is that something, talk about your experience as a black woman in general. When did you realize that, you know, it is a little odd being black in a white church or, or, or is that something that's blown out of proportion? Like sort of walk me through a little bit of sort of that first time where you felt sort of an inadvertent racial comment or, or, or where you felt black basically, where you noticed that you were black in a white church. So it was a gradual thing and it happened so gradually that I can't really pinpoint a moment in time, but I will say it probably became really noticeable for me about two or three years ago. I was feeling like there were two things that I would not, and I refused to budge on. And that was my faith and my blackness. And Mm -hmm. because I was realizing that my girls are growing up in a suburb and while they get to have a lot of the childhood experiences that I never got walking to school, riding their bikes, playing with their, their neighbors, they were missing a huge part of their black culture. And that, that rested solely on me and, and my husband to expose them to that. They're not getting the gospel music in the old Negro spirituals that I grew up knowing that were just matter of fact way of life. They don't get that unless I intentionally expose them to that. Um, right. But I'm also a Christian. Like I am choosing Christ. I am choosing God. I am choosing that he is going to be the center of my life. I cannot budge on that. And so we, in the past few years, you've seen like black people turning away from the church because, you know, um, they have church hurt. Like even in black churches, there's, there's sin and there's scandals and there's things where like black pastors haven't always done the right thing. And so then they, they carry that baggage and then they try to go to a multi-ethnic church or they go to a predominantly white church. And now they're seeing like subtle and overt racism. And so they're saying Christianity is a lie. It's a scam because on both ends, I'm not seeing Christ. And then, So to talk to them about my struggles as a Christian, how do I raise my girls to face this world and handle things in a Christian way? They've already turned their back on Christianity, so they can't help me there. But then my white Christian friends don't understand the nuances of being the one or one of a few black people in a predominantly white space and how you need to, you have to speak up to that. You you can't just like brush, paint, oh, I'm a Christian, my blackness doesn't matter in certain situations. And so I started just feeling this tension. So I have my white Christian friends, they don't understand the nuances of being black and how, um, how frustrating it is. Or maybe it's not frustrating, it's just an inconvenience when your culture isn't represented in your neighborhood. So when I want hair care products, I have to wait until I take a trip to the south side of the city or I have to ask my mom if she could pick some things up for me and then drop them off to me. I can't just go to the store around the corner and get it. So basically what you're describing, and I want you to kind of talk a little bit more about that, is sort of 
the, some of the pra- practicalities of being black. So uh, you mentioned a little bit um, about uh, some of the nuances of, of being black in a white culture and as simple as hair products. I find that a lot of uh, black women talk a lot about some such a simple thing, taking care of hair, and it's a big issue. And yet, tell me more about that because I find that so eye-opening. Like you literally have to go across town to find a product for your hair to bring back. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, we just have a different texture of hair and a lot of the products, uh, they just don't work for our hair. They don't give us the softness and the, the moisture that we need. In essence, this is a part of the, why wouldn't they have the products in the suburbs, right? Because there's not enough, you know, obviously supply and demand. I get it. But like, it, it's, a, I mean, even such a small thing like that is so instructive to be like, oh my gosh, you don't even think about the fact that that is isolating in and of itself yeah and and growing up we would go to the black um beauty supply store and there would be tons of products like hundreds products on top of products i googled beauty supply store uh (laughs) to desplains and i got a store for beauty salons where they sell it's funny salon chairs um and so the only other thing around here is Sally's and Sally's has like maybe one, like a small spot. It's not even a full aisle of um, dedicated to products for African-American hair. So I have to go back to my neighborhood. And, and it's, when I started like really feeling the tension of those things, I also started noticing things in the church. And actually, since we're talking about hair, like one of the things, uh, one incident that happened was we were having a conversation about accepting yourself the way God made you. Um, You know, people struggle with their eye color, their hair color, their height, their uh, body type. And there's this tendency to think that your life would be easier, would be better if you were different, if God had made you a different way. But we need to accept the way that God has made us. And in that conversation, um, as an example, someone told me that as a black mom, I would have to teach my daughters to accept that their hair would never be as easy to comb as as a white girl. And I'm like, but easy according to who? Yeah, what does that mean? Right. I have the straightest hair. I think it's bad because I can never do anything with it. But it's like culturally acceptable. And so you're like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And so I, there's a, I, I will say there's a lot to maintaining our hair, but when I talk to my white friends, there's a lot to maintaining their hair too. And so there's just this perception that black hair is somehow unruly or harder to make, to maintain. And that was said to me by a Christian inside the church. And so it's things like that where, and and they're subtle enough where it's like, you might not immediately recognize that as racist because you didn't say the N word. You didn't tell someone they weren't welcome at your church, but you have a bias about what somebody's life is like. And you're making statements to them, definitive statements without even asking. Yeah. Like I read uh, a couple of the books I've been reading. Like one of the common things that I've found is kind of offensive to at least the authors have written about it, like 
and I think when you think about it, it sort of blows your mind. It's true. You never think about it, but like a lot of people will go and touch the hair of, of someone black. And it's like, how, why do, why does that, why is that okay? And it's not. And, and so, I mean, things like that, that are so small, but they're so big. Is that something like, it's just the kind of thing that, that sort of also strikes you as, I mean, what, did anybody ever do that to you? And you feel like, why are you touching my hair? I don't know that I've ever had anyone touch it uh, without my permission, um, but I've been asked, could they touch it? And I've given permission. And while it was one of those things that I always wondered, like, why are you so interested in my hair? It's just hair. I was also never overly offended by it because I also recognized at a very early age that a lot of white people or maybe not a lot, but a lot of the white people that I was coming in contact with had never been around another Black person. And so it wasn't really coming from a place of um, mm. like, oh, you're a doll or, you know, you're some kind of circus freak, but more so like a genuine interest and curiosity. A, yeah, an innocent ignorance. And so I was always like, well, if I could help walk them through that, so then they can get it over and like just accept that black people have different hair. It doesn't offend me. So I'm fine with it. But even in me saying that, I'm sure that there are black women um, that when they listen to this, they're going to be like cringing and like, oh my gosh, she like, cause I grew up, my mom would tell me, you don't let anybody play in your hair. And maybe that also is a part of why it wasn't a big deal to me because I would see my friends playing in their hair. I would watch TV and then the, the white characters on TV, they could play in each other's hair, but nobody could touch my hair. And so <laughs> I think that subconsciously it was a part of like, I want to have hair that people can play in and touch too. Well, and, and I mean, and I know we're spending some time here talking about hair, but I found it yesterday. I listened to a talk by Emmanuel Acho, uh, the football player who's doing a lot of convers uncomfortable conversations actually by black man. It's a really great series. And, and he, it's funny. He says he's getting a ton of emails and he talked about the three most common themes. And would you believe one of the three questions? I, I really didn't think we would talk about hair today. Just you brought up something related to that. And I, I thought it was an interesting observation because he says one of the top three questions he gets, one of them has to do with like white women who write, why is it offensive to do dreads, like to have dreads and white women who get dreads. And he talked a bit about that and some, it's like asking permission because it's a, you know, you're sort of plagiarism and he kind of goes off on, on, on an idea in that, that I thought was eye opening to me. But, but I think there, I mean, there is sort of some cultural nuances again, that you bring up that again, I think, I think are born out of ignorance, but also um, I think the more you think about it are, are insensitive if nothing else. So, so what, what I would call also soft racism of, of sort of acting as if, you know, so what if it's different? Like God created different people, different ways. And when adults are, are, are asking questions about somebody's hair texture, I think the more you really stop and talk about it to this degree, you kind of go, man, what is wrong with us? Like, how is that okay? Right. And I, I, I think, I think clearly it's, again, it's not okay. And I think, um, and, and I think, um, and this is the first time I think in the last few years that, that, that white people are open to hearing black people say, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of yeah. having white people ask me to this and this and this. And I, and I kind of, and I understand it. I really understand it. And I, I think, um, how do we move past this stage? <laughs> to the stage where we understand and love and accept one another. Where, you know, what, 
what can an average, forget big church changes, what can an average white, even we'll pick on women, white woman do? You know, you go through repentance, you see, recognize there are things we do, but how do you, how do you handle this, this, how do you change, I guess? What do we, what are, what is helpful? Um, man. And I think that it also depends, like if we're talking on an individual level, it depends on where you are in uh, your racism journey. Uh, For some people, they've been aware that it's a problem. So they're on the next level. But for some people, they're just now starting to accept and acknowledge that this is a problem. And I think you have conversations and you listen. You don't try to center yourself in the conversation um, you don't try to refute what people are saying. Um, if some, if a black person, a black woman is telling you her experience, mm. listen to it. Don't immediately try to counter it with an experience you had or uh, what you see on the news, uh, but just listen. And I don't think there's a lot of that happening right now. There's this idea, like people just don't want to believe that racism still exists or that things can be racially motivated. And, you know, we talked about the hair thing and, you know, how it's made to be such a big deal, but we never stopped to ask, like, why are we making this such a big deal? If, if even on like minor levels, racism does not exist, then it should be no big deal that a black woman has a different hair texture, that she wears her hair differently, that there are styles that have cultural meaning that when we just, that when white people wear them just because they want to, without taking the time to understand the cultural reference, uh, relevance behind it, that that is racist. Like all of that is driving that. And so at the very beginning, there just needs to be this acknowledgement and then conversation. Let me just ask you though, to lean into this a little, because I think this is huge. Where should the listening take place? Like paint a picture of where, particularly Christian people and women can do this. Give us a vision for what that would look like. So um, there are a lot of black women, uh, black women, Christians, black Christian women that are speaking about this, that have been speaking about this for years. And so go there, read the books and, and listen to the podcasts that have already been created. I can tell you that when I first started doing spoken word at my church, I was introduced to Amina Brown. And following her, I was then introduced to Sharon Irving and Austin Shannon Brown and then Christina Cleveland and then um, Caitlin Curtis. And uh, she's Native American. But the list just kept adding with each name. And so That's good. And now the, you know, the thoughts and the theology will differ among all these women, but they talk very candidly about their experience as a person of color, a woman of color and a predominantly male, white male space. And so listen to what they have to say. Don't get bogged down on whether or not you agree with every single point that they make, but just listen to what they have to say. What about in the actual local church? Like, have you, you know, if somebody says, okay, but within our local church, like, have you been invited into spaces where you can speak into that, um, hold meetups or, you know, to educate even people in your own community? Is that something that's happening by and large? Or is the conversation only on this, you know, national level, listening to speakers? Like, what is there more that can be done locally? 
there is more that can be done locally. And like in churches, um, they need to have a conversation with the the people of color inside their church, but inside their neighborhood. The, so you have your you have your congregation and you have your members, but what about the people that live across the street but won't step foot in your church that are people of color? Like, are you showing them Christ in the community? Um, are you making them feel welcome? Now, there are going to be some that just aren't Christian. And so they have that first is going to block them from coming into the church. But you can still love on them and care for them, even though they're not members of your church, um, because you're in the same neighborhood and you're in the same community as them. Within your church, you absolutely can talk to the people of color, but don't make it about what they can do for you and what they can do for the church. Get to know them as a person. Um, it is great to have um, Black worship singers and, and Black teachers and Black greeters and ushers, but are you putting them in that position because they have a gift, a talent, and a personality and desire for that position? Are you putting them in that position to say, hey, look, we have a Black person. Hey, look, you know, we have an Indian person. Like, what are, what are your motives for how you use them within your church? Like when you are encouraging them to serve, is it because you absolutely wholeheartedly believe that as a believer, they should be serving in the church or do you get something from them serving? And it's, it's a tough question, right? That takes a lot of soul searching. Yeah. And so when you have those conversations, like don't worry the, the church, when they have these conversations with people, they need to not worry about getting them plugged in for the sake of proving that they care about diversity. It should be less get you plugged in because we care about you. And if no one on the outside ever sees your face up front, it's okay because you feel cared for within the body of Christ. Right. One of, I think one of the, um, uh, maybe in the last few years, I mean, one of the striking things, so, you, you know, the question that always happens in my mind is, you know, what can leaders do from up front? And I think one of the drastic failures, if you want to call it, of the last three, three to five years, I think, and maybe a little bit more than that, in the white churches, when big events happened, you know, um, we've talked about listing, say, the names of the people who were, who were unjustly killed. And, and when those situations would happen, the white church, I think, was guilty of not speaking at all about those um, those events. And it seems like as we got to George Floyd, it became so obvious that there, a wrong was done that it was almost like you couldn't not say anything. But um, do you do you think that might be also, a, so so pastors have sort of struggled with how much to say. What's your take on that? What would you advise a pastor who might be listening as a person who goes to, you know, black woman who goes to a white church when a big event happened, even tracing back to Trayvon Morton or Michael Brown, or, you know, when, when something big happens and nothing is said from the pulpit, I mean, how does that sit with you as a black person? So, um, in the past, um, I've accepted the, um, we're not a social justice church. We, um, we're, we're not going to make a statement about political issues from the pulpit stance. And, I, I realize now, fast forward, looking back hindsight, that that's not okay. Because even if we don't call out every single instance, we routinely from the pulpit call out pornography, abortion, addiction, but we do not call out racism in our sermons. 
And when I say we, I'm talking the church as a whole, not a specific church. And so the church wouldn't have to worry so much about making statements about individual instances or feeling like there's so many that we can't keep up if they routinely called out racism in their sermons, if they routinely showed their congregation that it's more to being a racist than lynching someone or calling them the N-word or any other uh, racial slur for uh, other ethnicities. Like it's, it's more to being a racist than that. If we routinely called out racism, then we, we wouldn't have to worry about being a social justice church because racism is a sin and we call out all the other sins. And so this one should be no different. That's a really good point. And like, and if, if that's true, then as opposed to doing your token, you know, MLK message once a year, you know, where you focus on black issues, it becomes integrated in the life of the church as opposed to, you know, a one week event, right? It's almost like, imagine talking about the cross, you know, just on Easter Sunday and missing it. It's, you know, it's sort of that idea that, that if you had a regular conversation about it, then you wouldn't have to go to that one event or that one time when the black pastor comes over to, you know, to swap pulpits, you know, it is, it is an interesting thing. How, How do you think the church is doing in the last month? If you were to think about sort of, how the church has has handled George Floyd uh, and post George Floyd Black Lives Matter, and just as a general, do you think they're catching on the white church, or do you think still ears are hearts hearts are hard, or where? How do you see things happening? Where's the hope in this season? I have to say, in talking to um, a lot of my Christian friends, there's a huge disappointment and a lack in how the church has stepped up, even in the last month. Churches are not saying anything because they're scared of saying the wrong thing. Or if they do make a statement, it's buried uh, within the sermon. And it's like a a quick little blurb that if you blink, you'll miss it. Um, And they're just not really strong statements. Or it's colored with uh, racism is a sin. And the only thing that can cure it is when Jesus comes back. There's a lot of like the gospel is the answer. Um, and that is across so many churches. And yes, the gospel is the answer, but the gospel is the answer for, like I said, a lot of the sins that we call out. And we don't tell people that um, they should wait for Jesus to come back to overcome their um, addictions or their well, uh, lust or greed. Yeah, and we're, we're fighting against you know abortion laws and on and on. I mean, there's a lot of work being done by Christians against issues that seem you know more forefront to the mind. You're right. I mean, how does that make you feel? Have you thought of going back to the black church, or are you in it to to see what God will do in this season? I have been doing a lot of praying about um, what God wants for me right now. Um, so I. Um, like I said earlier, I haven't always spoken out and I've accepted some things and I've been complicit. And I realized that I was a huge part of the problem. And if I'm going to hold my white Christian brothers and sisters accountable, I have to also hold myself accountable. And so I am committed to using my voice to speak out more and asking God to direct me, to show me what that looks like and how he wants me to use it. Um, I do not think that, um, it is a coincidence that he's allowed me to have the experiences that I've had and to be involved in the church in the way that I've been involved, because I think that it has created an opportunity 
for me to be able to have valuable conversations now. Um, and we need to have them now. And so I am, I'm waiting to see what God would have me to do. Will he have me go somewhere else? Will he have me stay and, uh, pick up the fight? Because the Bible is full of stories where we as Christians, um, we were surrounded by people that were not on our side and he used us to make a change and to affect people. And so we'll see what God has for me and my family. But one thing's for sure that we are committed to uh, using our voice wisely and in a godly manner. Well, I, I really appreciate that perspective. We'll be pr- I'll be praying for you. And, and I, I, I pray that God, and I believe that God does have you where you are for a reason. And I believe that change won't happen until we have people who are bold and will speak truth. And so I, I want to thank you for being on today. Um, I think we could spend another hour teasing out a lot of the topics that we've brought up. And I think this conversation, this is not a one session conversation, but an ongoing conversation. In fact, I know many people have, have made the comment. I think you probably would agree that there's no quick fix to what's happening right now. We're in it for the long run. And I, I think that doesn't mean you don't do anything, but that means you've got, you've got to start somewhere. And so, uh, uh, I think, uh, hearing your experience has been very helpful. I, I can, can people connect with you? Um, can you give us maybe a, um, do you have a, a either a website or a, a Twitter handle or Facebook? Like what are the best ways for people to connect with you? I'm on Facebook. Uh, my name, Tajra Sparkman. Um, it is also my Twitter handle. Uh, and that's T A I J A and then Sparkman. And so they can connect with me on either of those. Do you know how much I wish my name was, as cool as yours <laughs> spark man <laughs> I, <feel for> that. <laughs> I always spend like 15 minutes of every conversation trying to tell people how to say my name but man it is honestly it's been a joy to have you i um i i just appreciate your honesty i appreciate your insight and your outlook and i um i i, I really want would like to have you back on the podcast to pick up on some of the conversation that we started today and hope that god will use you mightily in the days to come Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you're still listening, thank you uh, for tuning in today. Uh, As usual, you know that you can find out a lot more about our ministry at livingwithpower.org. You've also got a ton of resources at your disposal. You can also download our app, the Living With Power app. Know that you are loved. God is in control and hope is still alive. I'll see you guys next week.